Well, this year, our theme uh, for our preaching ministry is learning the way of Jesus. And frankly, we will spend the rest of our lives as Christians learning about the way of Jesus. But right now, we're working through a sermon series from the epistles of the New Testament in the Bible uh, called Redeeming Regular Life. And this series uh, from the epistles or letters are letters from the apostles to the Christian churches around the Roman Empire in the first century AD. And these letters were written to help these believers understand and apply the gospel to life. Now you might wonder, to what part of life? And the answer is this, to every part. The way of Jesus changes everything. Well, last week we started the series with a teaching from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian Christians on marriage and that a healthy and godly marriage relationship between a husband and wife can be a beautiful picture of the gospel and of the relationship that we have between Christ and the church. Now, if you missed that message or any other message recently, you can always go back and watch on YouTube or listen to the audio podcast online. But today, maybe naturally, we move from the topic of marriage on to sexuality. Now, some of you might wonder if this is really an appropriate topic for talking about at church. And I would say two things. First is that kids in our culture today learn about sexuality in school around the fifth grade and honestly, probably earlier from friends, TV, the internet, or whatever. Um, so if we fail to address this in church, like if we just don't talk about it because it's awkward or uncomfortable, uh, that doesn't mean that we'll have, we won't have a perspective on this topic, which is very powerful and important in our lives. It'll just be worldly and not uh, bi- biblical. Well, secondly, the Bible also addresses it. So we should probably hear what the Lord has to say about it too. And so I think what you'll discover this morning, hopefully, is that the biblical perspective is both very realistic and extremely helpful and relevant to us today. So with all of that, let's jump in. Let's consider redeeming sexuality from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting with verse 1. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd encourage you to take that and open to 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 1. Otherwise, we'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well. So let's read through this, and then we'll unpack this together. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have to have, excuse me, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. This is God's word. So the book of 1 Corinthians in the Bible is, again, an epistle or a letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in and around the city of Corinth in the modern country of Greece. And Paul spent a few years in Corinth, and and just being Paul, he would preach the gospel, he made disciples, he started uh, gathering together this early Christian church, and then bounced on down the road in his missionary calling. But then Paul would write back to encourage his friends in their faith, and to clarify the gospel, and also to remind remind them of what he taught them when he was among them. 
But there were occasions when there was a specific issue or concern or a point of confusion that Paul had to write back to correct or instruct. And our passage today starts with one of those issues relating, obviously, to sexuality. So please look back at verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Okay, let's just pause here and make sure we understand what's happening in this passage. So verse 1 implies that the Corinthians had evidently written to Paul uh, about sexuality, and it appears that Paul quotes a statement from their letter. Uh, Quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now this quotation, as the NIV Bible translators put the quotation marks in there, um, this technique that Paul, is a technique that Paul uses throughout this letter where he quotes a statement that the Corinthians had made to him and then he responds to that and either affirms parts of it or maybe sometimes corrects what they said. So literally the phrase here in the Greek is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, this is a euphemism, a man touching a woman. It doesn't mean to get married, have kids, settle down, that sort of thing. In their commentary on 1 Corinthians, uh, a couple really smart people, Roy Siampa and Brian Rosner, document uh, using ancient sources this particular phrase, which implies having sex for casual purposes in or outside of marriage and only for pleasure. So this phrase in, Roman, in the Roman culture of Corinth in the first century AD was used to refer to a sexual relationship with, it could be a household slave or a prostitute or anyone other than your spouse. A modern phrase that might be slightly similar would be if we wrote, it is good for a man not to hook up with a woman. Now Paul and, and I might respond, well that's true, but for those who are married, it's not necessarily wrong at all to take pleasure from sex with your spouse. So having sex as a pleasurable or fun activity isn't necessarily wrong, as with so many other things in life, it all depends on the context. But Paul says because of sexual immorality, husbands and wives should have have sexual relations. Now the NIV translates, um, uh, adds in translation the phrase sexual immorality is occurring. That language isn't in the original text, but it it helps us understand some of the context which we didn't read this morning, but is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. In chapter 5, Paul addresses a situation where someone in the church is sleeping with their father's wife and seems to be boasting or proud about it for some reason. Perhaps they had misunderstood the grace of God to mean that it doesn't matter then how we act because God will forgive any evil thing that we do. And while it's true that we are forgiven for every sin because of the person and work of Jesus, the grace of God never gives us permission to do whatever sinful thing that we want to do. On the contrary, God's grace makes us want to learn the way of Jesus and obey him, not rebel against him. So there was confusion about this in the Corinthian church. Then, in chapter 6, Paul refers to sleeping with a prostitute, saying, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside their body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know, he writes, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? 
You are not your own, therefore. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the passage that immediately precedes uh, chapter 7. So whether or not the Corinthians had a problem with prostitution, I think there might have been at least the temptation in Corinth, which is why Paul addresses it here. Now, either way, uh, whether this was directly a problem or just a temptation in their culture, uh, the phrase, since sexual immorality is occurring, then Paul offers this pastoral advice to his friends in Corinth. Paul the pastor reminds his friends that each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. He goes on to unpack what he means by this with verse 3. Look back at that. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Now, if you think about it, this is so countercultural. And I'm reminded yet again that the way of Jesus is just different from every other way. Everyone, everywhere is challenged in their cultural expectations by Jesus. So if you're feeling challenged this morning, join the club. That's how it works. It was no different in Paul's day, by the way. Remember, there was a much different cultural context for the people that Paul was writing to. His original audience in Corinth was highly influenced by Roman culture, and in that culture, there was a clear double standard regarding sex. First, it was expected that if a woman was married, she should remain faithful to her husband, but they would only have sex for the purpose of procreation, of having kids. Now, in a way, I think this elevates the purpose of of sex as, as noble and special in being the only means of having children. However, sexuality in marriage was not seen as an appropriate thing to do for fun or for pleasure, at least in the marriage relationship. Greek thought viewed sexual desire as part of our lower base physical nature. As a result, many people in that day thought of sex as something which was really dirty or shameful, but necessary for having kids. Maybe some of you resonate with that view today. On the other hand, in their culture, a husband could have sex for pleasure in in this Roman culture, but only so long as it was with someone from a lower station or class, such as a slave or household servant, prostitute, or something like that. It was frowned upon for him to have an affair with another married woman, but that was only because that would be seen as an offense to her husband. Now, clearly, that was a double standard in what was expected of men and women in marriage. And there was also confusion about the purpose and the nature of sexuality. Does that remind you of any culture that you live in today? Just lots of confusion. But notice what Paul is saying. Against the culture of his day, he says that husbands and wives bear equal rights and responsibilities in marriage intimacy. That sex and marriage should be a two-way street. He says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. I think if if that's the first time you ever read that, ladies, you might go, whoa, 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 what is Paul saying? But he goes on to say in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, this is just totally different uh, than what the Corinthians would have expected about sexuality. 
but it easily fits with the passage we looked at last week from Ephesians chapter 5. It could easily be another application of the principle, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission in marriage should include submitting your physical body to your spouse in addition to the union of every other aspect of life in the marriage covenant. The language of scripture says two become one flesh. Now two becoming one flesh certainly includes more than just physical intimacy, but it does not mean less. But how often are we talking here, Paul? How important should sexuality be in marriage? We kind of see this in verse five. Look back at verse five. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, sometimes I ask you and, and our youth group and other people as I teach the Bible, did you know this was in the Bible? So many people don't know what the Bible has to say about sexuality. Whenever we read through this passage in premarital counseling, I always ask people, did you know this is in the Bible? And very few people knew that this is part of biblical teaching. Um, because the only thing that Paul envisions that might disrupt, think about it, regular physical intimacy in marriage, the only thing he can come up with is maybe a time of fasting and prayer. But he writes, only if both the husband and wife are in agreement. One person cannot opt out of this in the marriage. He says, by mutual consent. And he also says, not forever, but only for a time. Why? Why is this such a big deal? Well, he gives strong evidence uh, for why this is a big deal. He says, so that Satan, our adversary, and all the forces of spiritual darkness and evil in the world will not tempt us because of our lack of self-control. Now, sexual immorality was no more or less of a temptation for people 2,000 years ago as it is today. Our attraction and desire for one another, these are powerfully hardwired uh, things into human beings. One of the best ways to guard against being ruled by our attractions or desires for Paul was not to view sex as dirty and shameful and try and get people too embarrassed to uh, think it through, but to develop rather a healthy, regular sexual relationship with your spouse in the context of marriage. Sexual attraction and desire aren't inherently sinful things, but they must be expressed in the right context. But does this mean that one, if one partner is not able to give themselves to the other as much as they would like, or at all for, for a time, that sexual immorality is okay? Like if you don't have a healthy marriage relationship sexually, it's just okay for you to do whatever you want to do. And the answer is not at all. There are certainly seasons in life when even a vibrant and healthy marriage will not have as much sex or none at all for a time, whether due to an illness or uh, being physically separated for work or for some other reason. There are times when normal physical relations are just not possible. But this doesn't let us off the hook of marital faithfulness. Instead, the fruit of the Spirit, which includes the fruit of patience, self-control, faithfulness, this fruit is needed in spades in our lives. But these difficult situations are anticipated by our marriage vows. That for better or for worse, 
for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, you promise to love and to cherish one another until death parts you. So wedding vows are the promise of future love and fidelity, of faithfulness no matter what, no matter whether you feel like your needs are being adequately met or not. Wedding vows are the promise of future love. However, so long as you are both able, husbands and wives, Paul writes, should not deprive each other of physical attention or of affection. But doesn't this teaching make sex like too important? Sexual attraction is powerful, but is it everything? Does it rule us? Should it master us? The answer is found in verse six. Paul writes, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, Paul was a single guy, and apparently it wasn't an issue for him to remain single and celibate. In fact, Paul saw it, as he says here, as a gift, not as a disability or a deficiency in his life. Staying single allowed Paul to remain more focused on his ministry for the Lord, but neither did he see his celibacy as required by God for all of God's people or as a means by which he could become like a spiritual elite. Other apostles were married. We know this from God's word, and we know that that was not sinful. When Jesus taught on remaining single and celibate in Matthew 19, he said, the one who can accept this should accept it. Implying the one who cannot accept it does not need to accept it. So both marriage, as we saw last week, and singleness, which we will hopefully see next week, are both gifts of God. Gifts in different ways and gifts for different times, people, and seasons. Now, last week, we said that Christians believe that it was God who created the institution of marriage and the family to be the basic building blocks of our society. Not that everyone has to get married. That is not God's goal for all of his people, necessarily. But many people do get married. But even in marriage, not everyone stays married for various reasons, whether it be divorce or death. So in the same way, Christians believe that it was God who created human gender and sexuality as well. Not for us to use however we see fit, but for his powerful and meaningful purposes. Now in this passage, we see one purpose at least for sexuality in marriage is simply the joy and the pleasure that is supposed to be at the heart of the marriage relationship. We see this purpose in the poetry of the Song of Songs in the Old Testament. Elsewhere in scripture, we, we find that it is also God's intention that the purpose of sexuality in marriage would be about new life in the conception and birth of children. In the Bible, children are always described as a blessing from God, and it's true that babies are an exhausting and chaotic blessing, but they're a blessing nonetheless. So in addition to pleasure, joy, and procreation, kids, The final purpose for sexuality in marriage, according to the Bible, is a growing intimate knowledge between the husband and wife to know one another on a deeper, richer, more intimate level than you can have in other relationships generally. When you feel deeply emotionally connected to one another, physical intimacy can be just a natural outpouring of that emotional connection. But the reverse can also be true. 
Through physical intimacy, we can find a far greater and deeper emotional connection with our spouse as well. But what do we do with this teaching? Like, how do we apply this to our lives today? Well, I'd like to leave you with just three brief takeaways from this text for you to consider this morning. First, I understand that the Christian sexual ethic of faithfulness in marriage and celibacy outside of marriage has never been popular. However, it is clearly taught in Scripture. Now, if you don't believe in God, or if you don't trust that the Bible is God's word and has authority over all people, then I would very much understand why you might have different beliefs about these things. Perhaps believing that gender and sexuality are not objective realities, but subjective experiences guided not by divine command, but by our own preferences or opinions. The thinking goes, if there is no transcendent God, then our morals, including our sexual ethics, which we're talking about today, are simply our opinions. Now, from that perspective, I certainly understand why hearing a teaching like this may seem harmful or restrictive. Who are you to tell me what to do with my body? Why should your opinions about what is right and wrong trump mine? Fair enough. But if God is real, and this world is his creation, including our bodies, our gender, our identities, and the whole rest of our lives, then isn't it reasonable to think that God might have some intention for how our lives ought to work, including something as important and powerful as our sexuality? So while this teaching is definitely countercultural, and as we've seen, it has always been, whether it was Roman culture in first century AD or today, Learning this way, learning to submit in obedience to this way is simply part of the call of discipleship, of learning the way of Jesus, founded by faith and trust in God, our creator, our savior, and our redeemer. Now second, so first, this is just part of learning the way of Jesus. Okay, second thing to consider because sexual attraction and desire are so powerful, and because of the power of sin in this broken world, I know that some of you have experienced deep and painful wounds because of either your own sexual sin or of the sin of what others have done to you. And if that's you, I have to say, I'm sorry. Sexual abuse is a great evil. It is wicked and should not have happened to you. Now, part of the redemption offered in the gospel is the promise of forgiveness of sin, but also the cleansing of shame from our lives. In Christ, God is making all things new. In him, you too are a new creation who can enjoy true and lasting freedom and joy and peace no matter what you've experienced in the past. So I would ask you to turn to him and trust in him, and you will find that he, God, will bring redemption and healing and can set you free. But third and finally, for the married couples here today, or for those of you who will be married one day, how are you doing with this? 
Have you seen your physical relationship in the context of marriage more about what you're able to get from your spouse in in terms of self-gratification? Or have you seen this area of your life and your marriage as an opportunity to love and to serve your spouse sacrificially, to grow in intimacy with this person that you share the rest of your life with? Would you say that you communicate well about these topics or do you avoid them out of discomfort or embarrassment or shame? Do not give up this ground to the evil one because he seeks to divide and destroy. But recommit yourselves in your marriage to the wedding vows that you made, to love and to cherish no matter what until death us do part. Sexuality is a powerful thing. It's a glorious thing. It can be a painful thing, but it's not the most important thing in life. We must not be foolish about it or worldly in our thinking. But in Christ, remember, regular life, including our sexuality, can be a gift. The way of Jesus is not easy as we've seen and we will see. But it's the only way of redemption which leads to true and lasting freedom, joy, and peace. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the gift of sexuality. Thank you, Lord, that you uh, instruct us and guide us by your word in how to follow you in all the areas of our lives, including this area which is so powerful and can be so painful. Father, I pray for help for each couple here, each married couple, each spouse. I pray, Lord, that you would give them strength by your spirit so that they would grow in their ability to love and and give the friendship and affection and attention to their spouse that is their right and their responsibility in marriage. Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in our ability to love one another well, deeply and freely. Father, please forgive us when we look at our sexual attraction or desire as a a means of self-gratification, whether it's in our marriage or with someone other than our spouse. Father, would you forgive us and would you cleanse us of both guilt and shame today? Finally, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would grow in our ability to love one another well, to trust you, and to follow you all the days of our life, whether we fully understand your way or not. Lord, help us to trust you and obey you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.